Good morning. Good morning. If you look at your bulletin, you'll notice that it's last week's bulletin. Uh, we didn't feel like it was necessary to reprint one. The date is wrong, but everything else is right. I'm a little sheepish because if you've gone through orientation class, we have told you we will never, ever cancel church. That's the first time ever in my pastoral career that I canceled church. And it wasn't that I didn't think we could get here. It was that I didn't think we could control the parking lot. I had shoveled my driveway, went out 20 minutes later, and it was all drifted. And I thought, what if that happened up here? How would we get you out? We could have had 24-hour church. <laughs> I would have been excited about it. All right, let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to guide us. Father God, as we look at Luke 19, 28 to 40, we pray, Father, that you would allow it to come alive as we continue our study in the gospel of Luke. Father, we thank you for this passage, in some ways familiar, and in other ways, maybe not. And we ask, Lord, that your inspired and errant word would impact us, transform us, change us, that we would realize old truths and perhaps even see a few new truths in your word for your glory to transform our lives. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. If you have had the privilege of going to England, perhaps to London, maybe you have been to the Tower of London, or maybe you've seen it on the internet. The Tower of London is an amazing place with quite a varied history. At one time, the Tower of London was a top security prison. It was a place where you would send hardened criminals in fact, if you tour the Tower of London, you know that they still have a number of contraptions of torture. They tell you that about 37 people were tortured to death in the Tower of London. The number might be accurate, it might be low, it might be high. But if you look at these contraptions, you know that in yesteryear, you didn't want to go to that part of the Tower of London. Another part of the Tower of London held the royals. It's not Windsor or Buckingham. It's not Kennington. It's not one of the incredible palaces. But it is a place that is opulent enough. There are a half a dozen opulent rooms where royals were housed during times of trouble. Since the 1200s, the Mangeray, the, the zoo for royalty was held here. In times past, there were lions and tigers and zebras and giraffes. I get those two confused sometimes. And monkeys and other animals. In fact, at one time, there was a polar bear that actually would swim in the Toms River each day to get its lunch, not the time that you wanted to swim. Of that, I'm assured. In more modern times... It houses the royal treasury. If you've been to the royal treasury, you know that it is a bond and imagination. 
You'll see jewels and jewelry and coats of arms. You'll see dresses and serving plates. You'll see some elaborate crowns. In fact, a few of the crowns include the 1661 Edward crown. Until the 20th century, the Edward crown was used in coronation services. It was named after King Edward, a man who brought the, the Reformation to England. He only ruled for a little more than a half a dozen years, but he was a God-honoring, God-seeking, God-glorifying man. There's the 1937 imperial crown. This has been used in coronation services since 1937. It is also used on the monarch on the first day of parliament every single year. In this particular crown, there are about 2,900 diamonds, about 170 pearls, you have 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, four rubies, one dating back to 1387 called the Prince Ruby. It is a priceless piece. You also have a 1661 eagle-shaped ampulla. This was used to coronate kings, and it came with an 11th century spoon where they would take the oil and they would put it on top of a king or a queen to coronate them as a new monarch. In addition to that, you have the coats of armor, and they're incredible, and you have many dresses. In fact, this picture of Elizabeth II is her coronation picture, and in fact, everything that she is wearing is actually in this part of the Museum of the Tower of London. Oh, to be a king! I like the idea. Me as a king, you as my footstool peasants. It's just as a dream come true. But you think about the hubris. You think about the opulence. You think about somebody being born into royalty and just because of their birth, they get to rule over others. We may have a high view. We may have a low view of kings. But we ought to have a sky high view of the king. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the one who came because he saw you, he saw me. He came as a humble servant, fully God, took on human flesh, and then willingly went to the cross, laid down his life as a payment, a ransom for many, that if we by faith would believe in Christ, we would be given eternal life. With this introduction, I'd like to pick up I want to read from Luke 19, we'll read verses 28 to 40, what we call the triumphal entry. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Of course, you go up to Jerusalem, it's 2,600 feet above sea level. No matter what direction you go, you go up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called all of that, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. 
So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice, to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's set the scene. For the nine months previous to this event, Jesus has gone from up north in the Galilee to down south to Jerusalem. As the crow flies, 75, 80 miles, but he has taken a circuitous route. He has gone through 35 towns, villages, and cities. Every step he takes brings him closer to death. Every step he takes, the one who knows no sin becomes sin or will become sin as our sin is heaped on Christ. Maybe you're here today and it has been a very bad week. It's been a very bad month. Maybe you're here today and relationships have not gone well. Maybe you're on the verge of a marriage breakup or you have some disagreement with parents or disagreement with children or a former best friend seems distant from you and maybe life is not going well and you feel these relationship difficulties and this pressure pushing down on you. If so, put a bounce back in your step. Remember that you, I, we are the object of Jesus' rapt attention for nine months. He goes from Galilee to arrive in Jerusalem at Passover to be the Paschal Lamb, to be the one of whom Jesus said, or John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why does he take each and every step for nine months? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for your sake. For your sake, he who knew no sin became sin for us that through him we might become the righteousness of God. It is because you, I, we are the object of his rapt attention. For our sake, he took each and every step knowing that he would eventually be covered with our filth, our sin. He would pay the penalty of sin for the world. He would offer salvation to all. And for those who believe and receive him as Savior, we would be given eternal life. That's why he took each and every step. He saw you. He saw me. We are special in the eyes of Jesus. And when he arrives near Bethpage... He sends two disciples to go untie a colt, the fowl of a colt that had never been ridden on before. This, of course, was in fulfillment of what we read about in the Old Testament in Zechariah 9, the ninth verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, 
righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Imagine the King of kings, the Lord of lords, coming on a donkey. Why? Well, in fulfillment of Scripture, one of over 300 passages Jesus fulfilled in his earthly life that were recorded in the Old Testament. In addition to that, he's on the back of a donkey because 10 centuries earlier, the year 1000 B.C., King David had elevated a donkey to a royal animal. And Jesus was making it clear that he is of the Davidic line. He is the greater David. He is the Messiah. He is the one that comes and pays the penalty of sin and offers salvation to all who believe and receive in him. He's also on a donkey because of humility. Ten centuries earlier, a donkey was a royal animal. It was part of the Davidic animals that kings rode upon. But in the day in which Jesus rides, you cannot find the puppet King Herod on a donkey. You will not find Caesar on a donkey. It is an act of humility, an act of grace, an act of gentleness. Our gentle king who sees us, that we are the object of his rapt attention, that gentle king comes for you and he comes for me. I can almost picture those two disciples. I'm glad I wasn't one of them. Jesus says, go and find a donkey. He tells them where to go, and he gives them instruction. If the owner says, what are you doing? says, the Lord has need of it. Kleptomaniacs, this will not work in the 21st century. There isn't a police officer worth her or his salt that is buying this particular excuse. I would have gone with fear and trepidation, untying somebody else's donkey, saying, Lord, please let them not be home. Lord, please let them not be home. And of course, they're home, and they want to know why you're untying their donkey. And immediately you say, the Lord has need of it. And they say, great, go. Man, there's a lot I can learn. I can learn from the disciples to do the hard thing, to do the uncomfortable thing, to do the thing that God commands. And I can learn from the, in quotes, owner of the donkey. You see, the donkey owner understands that the real owner is God. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Sometimes when I give offering, I think, oh, what a, what a magnanimous gift that is. And I pat myself on the back as if I've actually given God something he doesn't already own. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Sometimes I have a wrong view of offering. I think that when I give, I'm, I'm giving, I'm sacrificing, actually God has entrusted things to me. I'm a steward, and I'm merely giving back the first fruits of what he has entrusted to me. That's what this owner clearly understood. And so when they said the Lord had need of it, he's like, go, take it. There's a lot I can learn from the text. There's a lot I can learn from the populace 
in verses 35 and 38. I don't want to imitate everything they do, and we'll see that, but there's a lot that they do that I want to imitate. I want to imitate the women and the men who take off their outer cloaks and throw them on the ground and allow Jesus to walk across them like Sir Walter Raleigh allowing royalty to walk over his coat. The idea is to to roll out the red carpet in front of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They understand the Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of Christ is that He is Lord and I am not. He is on the throne and I am not. That He is most important in my life and I am not. He is more important even than marriage, more important than children, more important than grandchildren, more important than a job, more important than a portfolio, more important than recreation. He is Lord. He is sovereign. You lay down your coat. He walks upon it. You roll out the red carpet. He is Lord. But not only is he Lord, but he is the object of our worship. I love the fact that they cite Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is one of the halal, a Hebrew word that means praise ye, one of the halal psalms. Psalm 113 to 118. You want to get your praise on, read Psalm 113 to 118. You're feeling down in life, read Psalm 113 to 118. And remember what kind of great God that you, that I, that we are the object of his rapt attention. And they cite this Hillel psalm. Praise the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Unfortunately, this crowd is fickle. Some of the very people who will cry out, blessed is he, will cry out, crucify in a number of hours. And before I'm too hard on them, I need to look at my own life. Sometimes I too am fickle. Sometimes with the very mouth I praise God with on Sunday morning, I use it in an improper way, maybe cruel or cutting or invective way, sometime later in the week. It should not be. And this we do not want to imitate the crowd. There's a detail that Luke leaves out that John adds. It's one that's familiar to us, so I want to read it. It's John 12, verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Nice, right? Not so much. Not so much. You see, there's something that Jews know about this text that we Americans don't really know. There's nothing wrong with buying palm branches on Palm Sunday. Nothing wrong with waving them. We do it in an act of worship. We join tens of thousands of other churches. Please no emails. I love the palm branches. Please wave them. More than a few have come to our house. But good, not so much. You see, the palm branch is a symbol of sovereignty. The palm branch is a symbol of revolution. It's a symbol of independence. It's a lot like the emblem, the bald eagle. 
The bald eagle in 1782 became our national emblem in June of that more of that year. We love the bald eagle. It's majestic, it's strong, it's powerful. It has long life. I don't know about you, but I love to see a wild bald eagle soaring in the sky. It makes me proud as an American. I love it. It warms my heart. The palm branch is the bald eagle. You can find the palm branch on ancient Jewish, not Roman, ancient Jewish coins. You can find it on pieces of pottery. You can find it in some tombstones carved in it. You can find it written about. It goes back to 167 to 160 BC. It goes back to the Maccabean Revolt. That's the Mattathias family who overthrew the Seleucid or Greek Empire. Maccabean means hammer. And the Jews brought the hammer down on the Seleucid, the Greek Empire. And the palm branch became their symbol. In fact, it became their political symbol even to this day. The palm branch means revolution. It means independence. It means sovereignty. Did you notice what the people were crying out in John 12? The king of Israel. They misunderstood the palm branch misunderstood who Jesus was and is. They're thinking politics. Jesus is thinking of a kingdom not of this world. They're thinking of driving out the Romans. Jesus is thinking of exalting Christ, the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They're thinking political victory, and Jesus is thinking transformation in our lives. The palm branch is one of revolution, sovereignty, independence. We still have the same problem today, don't we? You see, the Pharisees get it wrong. The crowds get it wrong. And the rocks, they get it right. The crowds get it wrong because they see Jesus as a political entity. They see him as the answer to their political dreams, their political means. Essentially, the crowds are saying... Preach politics, Jesus. Preach politics, pastor. I don't think there's one verse in Scripture, not one verse in Scripture, that would encourage me to preach politics. Preach issues in which politics have delved? Absolutely. You preach through books of the Bible, and when issues come up, you always preach them. You don't preach politics. That's exactly the problem we have with the people. They want Jesus to preach politics. They're waving the palm branches. They want revolution. They want to drive out the Romans. They want a genie God. They get it wrong. The Pharisees, they get it wrong. They want to be politically correct. They also want Rome to go. 
but they understand the implications of what's going on all around them. These people are waving palm branches. They are threatening Rome. They're crying out, King of Israel. It's insurrection. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, quiet your disciples, shut your disciples up. We are about to have serious trouble. So the crowds want a political Jesus. The Pharisees want a politically correct Jesus. The rocks, they're going to cry out and worship of Jesus. And so Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If these, the populace, are quiet, these rocks will cry out in worship. We know that Jesus is in the Mount of Olives. We know that then and today it is a glorified cemetery. We know that their tombstones don't go vertical. They go horizontal. They go low to the ground. In the Middle Eastern sun, you don't lay flowers on grave sites because the flowers will be destroyed in a matter of moments. You pick up rocks and you put them on top of the gravestones to let people know that you have come, that you have honored those who have gone before you. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If these, the populace, don't cry out, the rocks will cry out in worship of me. Think about Jesus. Fully God takes on human flesh, comes as a king, comes as a gentle king. The king of kings, the lord of lords, but he rides on the colt the fowl of a donkey that had never been ridden before. He comes in humility. You are the object of his rapt attention. He comes because of our sake. He comes for us. But he doesn't come to solve our political problems. That's on us. It's not on the church. It's not on Jesus. He doesn't come that we avoid issues and we become politically correct the Pharisees are all wrong. The rocks have got it right. They cry out in worship. Dumb as a rock, that's my life goal. I know. I have achieved it well. <laughs> Go forth, rocks, in worship of God. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that we would be like rocks, inanimate, lifeless beings that have the good sense to worship you. Father, we don't want to avoid issues. That's the Pharisees. We don't want to confuse the purpose of your son coming. He tells us clearly he did not come to condemn the world, but to save and his church, the bride, that is the purpose. To save and to worship and to exalt your son. Father, help us to have the wisdom, not of the populace, not of the Pharisees, but of the rocks. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This